Christ arose. I feel like I have to say, He is risen. He is risen <laughs> Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter uh, 16. It's not Easter Sunday, but it kind of is, isn't it? We're going to spend some time considering the resurrection. Now, uh, as we've been working through Mark's gospel, we have spent really months and months considering the betrayal and the arrest, uh, the denial, the trial, and finally the crucifixion of our Lord. We've spent months going over that. Uh, Chapter 14 is largely devoted to that. Chapter 15 is entirely devoted to that. Uh, And then we get to chapter 16 of Mark's Gospel, and we really only get a handful of verses on the resurrection. Uh, That might make some think that the resurrection is less important, because so few verses are given to it by comparison. Uh, But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Now, true, Mark doesn't emphasize the resurrection as much as he does the crucifixion. He doesn't even emphasize it as much as the other gospel authors do, or the letters of the New Testament at times. Uh, But he tells us something that is vitally important about the resurrection, and that is that it happened. The truth is, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that is something that we desperately need to know. The Lamb who was slain for our sins has risen never to die again. That is a truth that radically changes everything. Mark's Gospel ends with a glorious victory of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So let's read our text this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 16, looking at verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your Son to come and to live in this world, to take on our flesh, to live the life that we didn't and couldn't, and then to offer himself up as both the sacrifice and the priest. And then, Lord, in might, you raised him from the dead. I 
pray that you would help us this morning as we look into your word. I pray that you would grip our hearts with this truth. I pray that you would give us hope in light of what you have done here. Oh God, sustain us. Help us in our day. Help us to walk before your face. And thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit who works in us the, the same kind of power that you worked in raising your son from the dead. Help us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our main point here this morning is very simple. Jesus rose from the dead just like he said he would. Now, in verse 1 of Mark 16, uh, the text tells us that the Sabbath is past. Uh, there has been some debate over what day Jesus died on. Was it Thursday? Was it Friday? If we look at the details of John's gospel, it seems to point us towards Thursday. If we look at the details of Mark, it seems pretty clearly to point us towards Friday. Um, what day did Jesus die on? Well, I tend to think that uh, Friday takes better account of the details of Thursday. Uh, but uh, So I tend to think Jesus died on Friday, but it's not a an article of faith that our salvation depends on. Uh, what is very clear, though, as we look at the scriptures, is that Jesus rose on Sunday. The Sabbath uh, has passed, says here. Uh, John 20, verse 1, points to the fact that the women go to the tomb on the first day of the week. Even in our text here, it talks about... Uh, Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week. Now, uh, Saturday, the Sabbath, was the last day of the week. Uh, you think about creation. Uh, the Sabbath wasn't the first day, it was the seventh day. It was the, it was the last day, and the Jewish calendar uh, and their week was structured off of that. So the first day of the week is Sunday, and the early Christians began gathering on Sunday to commemorate the day of the resurrection of their Lord. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, uh, we see that the disciples are gathering on Saturday to break bread together. As Paul's in Ephesus, of course, you know what happens after that. He preaches long into the night. Eutychus falls out of the window and dies. He raises him from the dead. Uh, but they're meeting on Sunday. Uh, and it's on Sunday in the early hours of the morning that the women come to the tomb. Now, these are the same women that we saw earlier. Uh, they are the women who are at the scene of the crucifixion, but not right up by the foot of the cross. They are watching at a distance. One commentator said that it was too appalling to be close, but they loved him too much to leave altogether. So these women have watched the crucifixion unfolding at a distance, uh, and now, in their love for him, they want to go and perform this service of anointing his body. And they, uh, of course, on the Sabbath, you can't buy anything in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a day for rest, and there's no purchasing or selling on that day. So when the Sabbath is over, at sundown on Saturday, they go and they buy spices. Uh, they probably spend some good money on it, purchasing these spices to anoint his body. And it seems that on the way, they begin to ask themselves, wait a minute. How are exactly are we going to get into the tomb? Uh, there's this great stone that left. Even in our text it mentions it was very heavy. Uh, they don't know how 
they're going to actually get in. And so it's kind of ironic. They're on their, tomb, on their way to the tomb. They're worrying about how they're going to get in. As they're seeking to anoint Jesus' body with spices. But neither of those things are going to matter. First of all, we'll find the stone rolled away. And second of all, there won't be anything there to anoint. Uh, so, but they're on their way uh, in this, with this desire for this service. Uh, and they, they arrive at the tomb. Verse 4 tells us that this stone has been rolled away. And I'm not sure if that was a relief to them or if that was even more concerning. The women go inside to see what's going on. Uh, and inside the tomb, they go from being concerned to alarmed. Uh, there, sitting in the tomb, is a young man dressed in white. Now, the other Gospels make it clear that this young man is an angel. As it turns out there are two angels there, but Mark just mentions one. Uh, they find an angel sitting inside the tomb, and they are alarmed. Uh, that's a pretty normal response to angels in the Bible. When, anytime anybody encounters an angel, it's usually a traumatic experience. Uh, and most people fear their, for their lives there. And so it's not too shocking that the women are alarmed, all things considered. Uh, and the angel knows it. He probably is used to having this effect on people. Uh, he tells them not to be alarmed. And as we'll see, his words don't do much good. Uh, but far more important uh, than his calming words here, are the words he says next. Verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus, who was from Nazareth in the, the district of Galilee, uh, had come up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there, as we've seen in the last several chapters, and of course you know, he was crucified in the royal city. And he was laid to rest in a tomb. Uh, the women came to serve him, but he wasn't there anymore. Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, he had been truly dead, and he truly rose up from the dead again. There have been all sorts of outlandish theories about perhaps Jesus had fainted, or perhaps he wasn't really dead, or perhaps this and this to try to explain away the resurrection. There's no way of doing that without utterly rejecting the testimony of all of the New Testament. If there's anything that comes clearly through the New Testament, it is that Jesus died and that he rose again. The angel here invites the women to look at the place where Jesus has been laid down. He's inviting them to consider the evidence Look at the place where he has been laid. He's not there. And all sorts of good studies have been put out uh, that seek to make an argument on evidence for the resurrection, considering why would people, if they knew it was a lie, why would they go and die for Jesus if they actually knew he wasn't alive? Uh, just all the details around explaining uh, why do people act the way they do in light of this truth claim uh, if they know it's a lie? It, it just doesn't make sense. I won't go into those this morning. Uh, but the, the angel tells them to, to look and see where he has been laid. He's not there anymore. Now, this truth is communicated so briefly. Again, there's so few words here about this reality, but it is utterly earth-shattering. The resurrection brings a fundamental change to the way things work in this world. 
I'll invite you to go back in the Bible's narrative, uh, all the way back to the beginning. God created in the Garden of Eden the first man, Adam, and from that man he created the first woman, Eve. Although they hadn't yet reached the perfection of full spiritual maturity, they were still growing spiritually. Uh, God did create them sinless. They had no sin nature. And at that point, uh, there was no sin in God's human creation or in the world that he had put under the dominion of humanity. Uh, And out of all of the good things that God gave Adam and Eve, there was one prohibition that he gave them. One thing he said, don't do. Uh, Genesis 2, 17, the first part of the verse says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, what would be the consequence if they broke that command? The consequence was death. Genesis 2, 17, the rest of it, he says, For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you translate that overly, literally, it says, Dying, you will die. They're going to be very dead if they eat that fruit. And, of course, you know the whole story. The woman's going to be deceived by the serpent, the devil. She's going to grasp that which she must not take. And she's going to invite her husband into that, who's going to follow her into that sin. Together, they're going to plunge headlong into sin. And it's at that point that humanity falls from this sinless state uh, into sin. Uh, And it's a sin that will affect far more than the first couple. Man was appointed over the creation, and when he fell, he dragged the whole creation down with him. And at this point... uh, the point of this sin, death enters into God's creation. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, at the step here into sin, death enters into God's creation. Death enters into humanity. Uh, Brendan read out of uh, Romans 8. I'll just reread a couple of those verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 20 to 22. We see that it's not just humanity that's affected, but the whole world is. Uh, Romans 8, 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of of childbirth until now. The curse of sin lies heavy on this world. And it has done that since the first sin. Uh, And the trajectory of this world has tended towards death and decay ever since that day in the garden. Uh, If you've ever noticed, you're reading along in the Bible, of the, the characters in the Bible... There's something that they all have in common. The end of their story is death. We just read that as a a refrain again and again, and he died, and he died, and he died. The genealogies are followed with the fact that this person died this many years or that many years or this many years. Uh, With the exception of Enoch and Elijah, everybody dies in the Bible. The best, the worst, and everything in between meets the same fate. The curse catches up with every single person. You know, Adam runs for over 900 years, but he doesn't run fast enough or far enough to escape death. But in the early morning hours, 
of that first Easter Sunday, all of that was fundamentally changed. Now, how exactly the resurrection happened, I don't know. Uh, We do know that it happened. The father raised his son back up from the dead. The body of Jesus that had been dead came to life again. His body and soul that had been separated in death were reunited. He began to breathe. Death had the final say for all of the children of Adam and Eve until that day. The Lord Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead. The, the dominion that death held over humanity was fundamentally broken on that day. And scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15:20 and in other places that Jesus is the first fruits uh, of the resurrection. He is the first of the many that will follow him. Through faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, we find forgiveness. And at that time, we're reborn. All those who have trusted in Christ enter into this resurrection life. We spiritually are brought into this resurrection life that Jesus has. And one day, we will be raised up to live forever with him. Although we may have to keep that appointment with death ourselves, death will not have the final say over us any more than it had the final say over Christ. The reality is, is we live in the in-between of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and between that time and, and the day that he makes all things new, we live in a very broken world. Our bodies do wear out. Uh, we begin to lose steam instead of gain it. Uh, our bodies begin to heal a little slower than they used to. Uh, And that is a sad reality, this side of the fall. But we also live with great hope and anticipation of the resurrection, our own resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is our hope that we too will be raised one day. Our bodies will be restored. I don't understand how exactly God's going to do it, but he has promised that he will. The moment that Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed in this world. Now, it might not have looked like that on that morning, and it might not even look like that today, uh, but things are changed. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we have the hope of seeing him, and we have the hope of living with him beyond this life. Now, like I mentioned, Mark does not spell out all of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for us. But one of the main things he does tell us is that it happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we can add to the fact Uh, that uh, from the Gospel of Mark here, uh, we see that it happened just like Jesus said it would. Now, there are at least four places in Mark's Gospel that Jesus says that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. We'll look at the fourth one in a bit here, but Mark chapter 8, 31, Mark chapter 9, 31, and Mark chapter 10, 34. Three different occasions there as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he says that when he gets there, he's going to be put to death, and then he's going to rise from the dead. Uh, Jesus was very clear with his disciples that he would die and rise again. Uh, He knew full well that he would do that, and he told them. Now, one of the striking things is that although Jesus said it in the clearest of terms, 
his disciples just didn't get it. Not the first time, or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. They just seemed to not get it. Even in our passage here, uh, the women, for all of their good intentions, uh, and, and the love that they're showing, they're coming to anoint his dead body. They're not expecting him to be alive when they get there, even though he has said that he would be. Uh, but they do come to the tomb. They find the stone rolled away, and they find the angel inside. Um, after he tells them that their Lord has risen, he commissions them to be witnesses to this reality. I want to reread Mark 16, verse 7 again. It says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Uh, they are to go and report to the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to go before them to Galilee. Uh, Jesus had told his disciples this very thing uh, back when he was on the Mount of Olives in chapter 14, verse 26 to 28. Uh, this is just before he prays in Gethsemane. Uh, Mark 14, 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's the fourth time he says that he will die. Uh, but after I am raised up, that's the fourth time he tells him he's going to rise from the dead. Okay, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus has told them that he's going to do that. Uh, and uh, the angel tells the women that uh, Jesus is going to do the very thing he said he would. Now, why would the, the angel separate Peter out? It's interesting. Tell the disciples and Peter, those who believe in a succession of popes down from the Peter, from Peter throughout the ages, would want to quickly say, "Well, Peter's kind of above the rest, so that's why he gets special mention." I don't think that's why Peter's singled out here. Uh, if I'll just continue reading back in chapter 14, what Jesus says immediately, what happens immediately after Jesus told him he's going to go to Galilee, verse 29, Peter said to him, "Even though they all fall away, I will not." And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, Peter, for all of his gusto and all of his good intentions, he wilted in the face of pressure. Uh, as he was in the courtyard waiting, uh, his fear overcame him, and he denied his Lord three times. Uh, I think even as Peter failed really, really hard here, I, I can't imagine what he was feeling. Uh, out of all of the living disciples, I think Peter probably needed to be called out by name the most. Uh, I think he needed that kind of sweet mercy of being told that he is still wanted. Uh, his failure, Peter's failure, had not put him outside of the love of God. And it had not put him outside of the love of Jesus. Now, I hope, as we think about ourselves in light of this, I hope that there isn't a single believer in this room that feels disqualified from the love of God because of sin you've committed. Do not let Satan hold you down over sins that Jesus has died for. Do not live as a slave when Christ has made you a son or a daughter. 
Peter is called here to, to come along with them. He could have been casted out for his failure, but he's not. There in Galilee, the disciples are going to receive the Great Commission. Uh, they're going to receive the call to take the gospel out to all the nations and to make disciples of all nations. It's really striking here that the plan of God to bring salvation to the world does not depend on these faltering disciples. It depends on the faithful God who has committed to do this. And our last verse points to that with some irony. Many point out how ironic the ending to this scene is. Uh, the angel speaks such incredible words of hope and purpose. He commissions these women to go out and to tell the good news to the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they run. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we do know from the other Gospels that they do eventually get around to telling the disciples. Uh, but it seems that their initial response to the angel was fear, and they flee from the angel. Uh, apparently, when he told them not to be alarmed, he wasn't very persuasive. Uh, they were gripped by astonishment, and they fled in fear. Now, the other Gospel authors don't make a point of this, but Mark does. Uh, and I think it really fits into a theme that we have seen running along throughout Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark has pointed out at several points that the disciples and followers of Jesus did not always get him. They didn't always understand him. They didn't always get it right. Uh, and they don't always respond in the way they should. And here of all times, you would think that they'd get it right. But they freak out and they run away. Uh, I think that God has included these things in his word uh, so that we can see that the early followers of Jesus were not superheroes. Uh, they had failings and falterings just like us. They were normal people, and they were prone to get it wrong at times. And yet God was pleased to use them, and he was incredibly patient with them. Uh, I, I think this makes sense, especially if, as tradition says, Peter is at the elbow of Mark, if you will, uh, giving him details, some of the, the first-hand accounts, uh, of what happened. If, he's, if Peter's there in the process, uh, we could imagine that that could be a theme. You know, Peter had failed so miserably at times, and yet he found grace from God. And he went on to serve the resurrected Christ. You know, and here we are. 2,000 years later, uh, we are still serving the resurrected Christ, and we are imperfect. Uh, we find ourselves struggling at times, even as we do desire to be faithful. Uh, there is hope for us as we walk with God. He is patient with us as he was patient with his first disciples. Uh, and there is an ultimate hope for us in this world as we follow the risen Christ. Uh, these verses tell us that the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. That changes everything. Do you hope in the resurrection? Do you find hope in the resurrection? Uh, the, the, that Jesus rose from the dead is foundational to all of our hope, our hope of salvation, our hope of future life, our hope that even this life itself is not pointless. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and that changes everything. As I conclude now, I want to say a word about the verses that follow verse 8. Uh, I believe that the original text of Mark ends here at verse 8. Maybe in your Bible you see some uh, brackets that separate verse 8 from what follows. 
Uh, some have called that the longer ending of Mark. Uh, in our next time together, in a couple weeks, when we come back to this, I want to look at those verses. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about why it's bracketed off, uh, the meaning of those verses. I want to walk through Scripture in the New Testament to see so many of these teachings reiterated elsewhere. We're going to spend some time on that. The sermon will be a little different than usual, uh, but I do want to walk through that. I do believe that Mark's original gospel ends here at verse 8, but we'll, we'll spend some more time considering that in a couple weeks. Uh, and now I do want to ask the men to prepare for communion uh, and Michelle to come to play as we go to prayer.